So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hey everybody, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, you know I like to engage in flights of fancy at the top of the show before we get to the main program. What's on the menu today? Okay. Uh, for our listeners, I haven't told Shannon uh, that any of this is coming. You usually um, don't, but, I would like to know. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, I want to talk about a topic that combines a couple of things that are going on. One is your pregnancy, mm -hmm. and another is trends in the social sciences and in the hard sciences. The The topic is uh, shame, Okay. And most of us, when we think of shame, we think about how we ourselves experience it, right? So if we do something that is considered shameful, we feel some mixture of embarrassment or guilt. But societally, I think most of us also think that shame is a useful corrective measure on behavioral norms, on the way we act. Right. How so, do you know shame? Yeah. So it, for instance, uh, if there's not a law that forbids somebody from being a jerk to me, and I hope there wouldn't be a law... People probably still don't go around being jerks, at least in part, because that has been deemed shameful behavior by society. It's mm -hmm. a good thing. Mm -hmm. A problem arises when uh, societal shame is directed at behavior that doesn't deserve to be considered shameful. And this is where we start talking about both the hard sciences and social sciences. So think of all the things that have changed over time, even recently. In economics, we thought that we had solved the problem of managing business cycles. And before the financial crisis, some economists who tried to warn that we hadn't figured it out yet, that another big crisis was still possible, were in some cases shamed. One was called famously a Luddite for bringing it up. Okay, that's economics. Let's look at nutrition science. Okay, recently the U.S. Department of Agriculture's guidelines were updated again. They're updated every few years. And the updated guidelines now emphasize the risks of too much sugar. They tell us that coffee, even drinking three to five cups a day, is considered part of healthy eating behavior. Much to your right? delight. Right. The dangers of salt, of having mm -hmm. too much salt, were mm -hmm. downplayed a little bit based on what we've learned. And keep in mind that for decades, we thought that eating a diet rich in fat was worse than eating a diet rich in carbohydrates. That's being rethought. In the realm of uh, psychology and psychiatry, uh, there's something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is like a, a Bible for standardizing the criteria used by psychiatrists uh, in how they treat their patients. Uh, and that is also updated over time. It once said that homosexuality was deviant behavior, right? But let's look at it now. Even more recently, um, some researchers in Canada did a study of people's sexual kinks and fetishes, right? And it turns out that those that are labeled uh, deviant or um, abnormal by this manual, right, almost half of people express an interest in them. Right. It turns out that uh, being a little bit freaky isn't a sign that you're psychologically damaged. It's just a part of being human, okay? This is where we get to your pregnancy, okay? <laughs> 
And specifically, okay. <laughs> and specifically the idea uh, of how pregnant women should behave yeah. and yeah. the fact that they are judged by society yeah. in there's terms a lot of, of how they behave. Yeah, there's a lot of policing right. of behavior going on. There's a you lot get, of policing you behavior. Asked, should you be eating that? Should you be doing this thing? Everyone's like, everyone knows better than you. Right. And it's, and it's really none of anybody's business. So specifically, uh, the economist Emily Oster has written about how the evidence looking at alcohol consumption uh, and pregnant women isn't what everybody thinks it is, right? right? And isn't certainly what the CDC has recently recommended. So what's the CDC? The Centers for Disease Control. Centers for Disease Control. In the U.S., like right. recently passed this ridiculous recommendation that any woman of childbearing age who is not on birth control shouldn't drink at all. Okay, right. So this is all a big wind-up, and I have a conclusion to this, mm-hmm. but for now, this is a wind-up introducing your recent conversation uh, with Emily Oster, which we are going to soon play on our sister long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. But for now, I just want to ask you what you learned in the interview and what we should take away from Emily's research, because it did inspire all of this thinking uh, <laughs> about the concept of shame. Yeah, we had, so we had a really great chat with Emily. Um, she's she's just she's fantastic. She's really interesting, and her her range of interests is really wide. Um, so she's done a lot of studies on health. Um, she's done stuff on HIV and and Africa and trade, and also written this recent book um, called Expecting Better about pregnancy and kind of about all of the recommendations and risks uh, that were people sort of have in society have learned about, but they don't necessarily really understand the evidence behind. And I have found it to be a really great uh, sort of guide to the way I should be thinking about about a lot of this conflicting information you hear. In terms of drinking a glass of wine while you're pregnant, what did you say? Her findings there, looking at the studies that have been done, which there's a whole like caveat about how the studies that have been done are not particularly great, um, partially because there's a lot of ethical issues with doing studies on pregnant women. But generally, her, her conclusion from the evidence is that moderate drinking, like light to moderate drinking, particularly in the second and third trimester, basically if you're going to have a glass of wine, like you know once a week or so, you're fine. Like it's unlikely to have any harm. It's really once you get into binge drinking, and particularly drinking in the first trimester, that can have adverse effects on your fetal development. And but the problem is we end up making these public policy decisions sort of around the lowest common denominator. So we don't want to make people think it's okay to just go out and drink because. I would argue because, you know, we think it's that people can't sort of control themselves or we, we think that people kind of can't make those judgments. And so we end up with these kind of blanket policies that don't really fit the evidence at hand. But do you hesitate to order a glass of wine if you're at a restaurant and noticeably pregnant? So I'm, I've like only got, just gotten to the point where I feel like it's like fairly physically obvious that I'm pregnant. And so I haven't encountered that yet where I've like gone out in public and been drinking. But I will have a beer every once in a while at home, and I feel okay about making that decision. I did think the other day I went to a sushi restaurant, and I was sort of wondering <laughs> if if I was going to get any pushback. Okay. I didn't. That's going to be an awesome interview, and everybody should check it out. And my conclusion on all this is that there's a reason why we strive to get these things correct. is because it actually can influence people's behavior. But maybe the bigger takeaway from all this is that we really need to be humble about the extent to which we can know anything definitively because our knowledge changes over time or what we think we know changes over time. Uh, and so when we talk about getting things right in the social sciences and in the hard sciences, uh, it's great to apply those lessons to our lives. But the last thing we should do is point at other people and say, you shouldn't be doing this if in fact the knowledge isn't as certain as you think it is, right? Do some work before you start shaming people, right? And definitely 
don't think about shaming my colleague and friend, Shannon Bond, <laughs> for having a glass of wine in her third trimester. I will come after you. Thanks, Cardiff. Okay. Now, let's get on with today's show. On the show today, first up, Anders Eriksson is a psychologist who has pioneered a lot of the academic research on what it takes to become an expert. He's been studying it for decades. He joins us in the studio. And so does Matt Garahan, the global media editor, who's going to take us through the succession planning disaster. That's not too strong a word. At Disney, which was thought to have one of the better succession plans in place and what that means for the future of the company and for Bob Iger, the current CEO. First up on the show is psychologist Anders Eriksson. He's got a new book out called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. He's been studying what it takes to become a world-class expert for decades. A few years ago, you might have heard of the 10,000-hour rule. It was popularized by the journalist Malcolm Gladwell. Essentially, it said that if you study or practice anything for 10,000 hours, you will eventually become an expert. That's not exactly what the research said. It requires practicing in a very specific way, and the topic itself is a lot more nuanced than that. So we thought we'd get the psychologist who actually did the research to talk to us about it, Anders Erickson joins us in the studio now. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start getting into the details in the book, we should probably define a few terms for our listeners. So uh, the foundations uh, of the book are a couple of concepts. One is deliberate practice. Another is mental representation. So let's take you to those two in turn. Uh, what is deliberate practice and what distinguishes it from other kinds of practice? So, so we kind of talk about normal experience people are just doing. Uh, but uh, in order to really improve, we argue that you need to engage in purposeful practice where you actually pinpoint something specifically that you want to improve. And then you try to find an environment where you can actually gradually improve that uh, with getting immediate feedback. Uh, now, so that would be sort of something that people could do on their own. Uh, we kind of reserve the term deliberate practice for the case when you have a teacher who is actually monitoring somebody and assesses, you know, their current skill level and then actually recommends the kind of goal that they should have for their current performance and also describe the kind of training activity that would actually allow you to gradually get to that point. And then the teacher kind of keeps monitoring your progress and then you know, incrementally helps you decide what to do. Let, let's uh, apply that to an example. Um, you give many in your book. One of the ones I liked was that of uh, a 70-year-old martial artist who's trying to learn karate. How would someone like that go about uh, employing deliberate practice, and how would that improve his performance over somebody who is just using a normal kind of rote way of practicing? Well, uh, I guess we would argue that going and finding a teacher – that that basically would assess here and taking into account, you know, sometimes uh, your age, there may be some things that you have an easier time doing, but setting goals that are actually attainable. Because I think the problem is that if you by yourself set goals, uh, you don't really know necessarily how much time it would take and whether it's even possible with the training that you're kind of engaging in to actually improve. And I think that gets to the idea of secrets of 
expertise is that over centuries, when people actually have tried to improve their performance, they've uncovered methods that aren't, you know, obvious, where you can actually engage in training that would allow you now to improve certain things by doing things that are sometimes a little paradoxical. Right. So the guy learning karate, right? It's not enough just to start doing the forms on your own if you don't know how you're doing them wrong. You need somebody to show you, well, this is how specifically you need to punch. This is how you're punching now. This is what you need to fix. Same thing with kicking and all the other movements. And this applies more broadly to other things, right? Right. And and I think that idea as you get more skilled, you actually can have an internal image of what you're trying to do. So you actually can at least uh, monitor whether you're able to do it from time to time. When you're a complete beginner, it's almost like you need the teacher to tell you what you're doing wrong. Uh, but as you get more skilled, the more, and, and that gets to the idea here of mental representations, that you in your own mind can now have an image of what you're trying to do. You try to do it, and then you can evaluate what are the differences between what you intended to do and what you actually did. And by having a feedback cycle would allow you now to kind of close that loop so you're now able eventually to do what you set out to do. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about mental representations, though, Um, because you said in your book that sometimes when you try to explain it to people, it comes off a little bit vague. Let's talk about it in the context of memorizing a sequence of digits, because this is another example that you include in your book, how you train somebody to be able to memorize not just 10 or 20 digits in a row after you read them to them, but I think eventually it got into the hundreds, right? This is kind of astonishing. Before you started working with this guy, I don't think anybody had done more than, I don't know, 20 or 30 or something like that. Um, And now there's people memorizing hundreds and hundreds of digits in a row. Mental representations, how does implementing a mental representation help somebody learn how to memorize digits and then take us through like some of the wider uh, applicability of this concept? Right. And uh, so if we're looking at the spontaneous thing, if somebody reads your digits, what most people would do is rehearse them to themselves. So especially if you get seven digits and a phone number, you would be able to now uh, punch in the phone number afterwards. But basically, you're really not doing anything mentally. Uh, and, and this is kind of where most people start when you actually give them this memory test. They can do between five and nine digits long list. But when we gave training to a college student that volunteered, uh, and we asked him to think out loud or, or describe his thinking processes while he was kind of doing the memorizing, we found that when he actually changed strategy, so instead of just rehearsing it, he actually pulled apart three digits and thought about them as a running time because he was a runner. Now he was able to actually put those three digits in long-term memory, and he could kind of forget about them and then focus in on the rest of the digits. So when he recalled, he would basically now retrieve it from long-term memory and then basically the other digits. And as he got skilled, he could do not just one three-digit group. He could do, you know, about uh, 20, 25 uh, sort of uh, three-digit groups. So, so basically, the idea here is that the way you improve is not by just doing more or faster what people spontaneously do. You often very qualitatively do things differently. So the expert, when they're facing a situation, they actually have a very accurate representation of what is happening in a way that allows them, if you were to kind of close their eyes, they would be able to tell you the important aspects of the situation. 
Uh, so similarly, in the in the memory case, doing more by actually forming these associations and storing it in long-term memory, you're now able to do, uh, you know, 80 digits, or I guess uh, the current record is like f- over 450 digit long lists, uh, which is pretty amazing. The practice itself, I mean, it's interesting. It feels like there's sort of two two things that are happening simultaneously in the practice. You're, of course, like working on the skill itself, but you're also working on how to work on the skill. I mean, there's a meta aspect of this. Right. You know, when you're actually trying to improve, you're trying to do something that you have not done before. Mm -hmm. And and I guess what we saw with the guy with the digits was that he was kind of trying out things. And given that he got immediate feedback on memorizing each list, he kind of knew what worked and what didn't work. Uh, so eventually he refined his methods and, and and I think emphasizing kind of that cognitive work. And I would argue that that's true for athletes as well. And, and sometimes athletes are viewed here as people who are not thinking as much. But when you look at the elite performers, I've consistently found that they are just amazing in their insights into their own thinking processes and how they actually go about, you know, learning new ways of doing things uh, that may actually give them an advantage and a competitive game. Well, I think what's interesting is that, as you say, I mean, it is, and as you point out in the book, this is true for things that we think of as more as mental tasks as well as physical tasks. So, and, and, and you argue that it's really, I mean, our brains are really designed to be able to do this. So what is it about the human brain that is, you know, particularly if we put the effort in, you know, allows us to do kind of any, learn how to do any variety of things, it sounds like, if you're applying sort of the, the right sort of deliberate practice. Right. And, and and just to give another example, how the mental factors in. Uh, so the speed by which you can do certain things is limited by the time it takes for nerve impulses to reach basically your hand or whatever. And that's a limiting factor. So the way that actually people become experts where they can do things almost instantaneously, it's not that the speed of the processing is faster. It's because they're actually being able to anticipate based on their analysis of what's happening so they can actually kind of make the impulses before things are really happening. And and that, I think, is a nice example here of how you work around the biological limitations and how skill is really something that is an add-on that is very clearly not something that you're born with, but actually something that uh, you, you must acquire here through practice. Yeah, I mean, the plasticity of the brain, its ability to adapt, is another one of the dominant themes uh, in the book. Tell us about what that means for how we should think about developing expertise because the traditional framework is, well, we're all born with a certain amount of potential and then we spend our lives finding ways to get to that potential. You have kind of a different approach and it has to do with expanding the amount of potential that you're born with itself. Uh, How important is that in terms of how we go about learning? I think that's critical and I guess I've talked to a lot of college students who actually are looking for what they what their gifts are and what they're good at. Uh, and I personally try to tell them, you know, don't worry, and, and I don't think there's very much evidence here that there are these gifts to be found. So why don't you basically decide what you want to be and then actually start this process of actually being that. And, and that's where we argue that if you can find a mentor and a teacher who can actually guide you through this very extended process 
that it would take for you to really you know, reach the kind of high levels that you many people want to reach. When it comes to really evidence that people are born with limitations that would not allow them to be successful, the only body of evidence that I think there's great consensus about is innately constraining. That's body size and height. So if you want to be a center in basketball and you're, you know, 5'4", you you probably should be looking at other domains. And and, and given that there are other domains where actually being short is an advantage, so uh, artistic gymnastics is an example where, you know, if you're about four. Uh, 10, you know, that that's a good size for you to be a contender for, you know, really uh, winning medals here at the Olympics. Towards the end of the book, you start to debunk like the great examples in history of people who seem to be prodigiously talented, right? And who seem to be prodigies. Uh, you use the example of Mozart and how he was allegedly composing by the time he was eight or 10 years old. May or may not be true, but probably not. But also he started practicing at a very early age. Why don't you take us through a couple of those stories? Because I thought this was fascinating and what it tells right. us about talent. And, and, and I think uh, what we find and what people find when they look at the uh, uh, development of Mozart, his father you know, was basically a pioneer in actually training children and writing exercises that would allow children to actually start becoming uh, musicians. Because it used to be the case that you actually started working on music when you were, you know, maybe 16, 17, like any other kind of profession. So this was actually something quite new that is associated with Mozart's father. And he started training his daughter, and then I guess Mozart was the second child and, and basically the one that I guess got the earliest start of training and, and in some ways benefiting probably from some of the experiences with his older sister. But one of the things that we talk about in the book that is kind of interesting is this ability of perfect pitch uh, where you actually get a tone and, and some rare individuals are actually able to tell you which note that is. So if you're playing any of the keys on the on the piano and you can't see which key is being played, uh, some individuals are very accurate in telling you exactly which key and the associated note. Now, older people actually have tremendous difficulty to acquire that skill. And, and it was for a long time believed that it was even completely impossible for old people people to do it. So it seemed, you know, uh, if people can't learn it, uh, then it must be innately given. But more recent research shows now that if you get tra- give training to any child between ages three and five, now any child can actually acquire this. So it seems like the brain is going through kind of a developmental process where if you catch the brain at this point, it will actually allow you to acquire the skill, and it will also change a little bit the trajectory of how the brain will grow. So it's a little bit of the bent twig effect, where if you just bent the twig early on in development, it's going to have consequences down the line. So that's consistent now with the fact that Mozart had this early training, music training, uh, with keyboards. So you know he actually got this opportunity to learn the notes. Uh, and, and, and that would explain now why he had perfect pitch, uh, although it was pretty rare at that time uh, for people to have that. 
in this country where we're so focused on sort of these objective test measures, right, and, and common core requirements. I mean, how do you think how do you think that's affecting learning versus sort of the, the ideal way you might set up um, for people to to learn in ways that allows them to, you know, fulfill and expand their potentials or even find their potentials? Right, and 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 I think uh, personally that to move away from uh, the learning of knowledge and, and basically just testing uh, the degree to which you can actually recite back the knowledge. And and in the book, we talk a little bit about the physics initiatives where, mm-hmm. you know, instead of having a lecture give the same lecture year after year, you can just video record it and the students can actually watch it before they come to the first meeting. And then you can spend the time here applying this knowledge to real-world situations that actually, in some ways, would allow the students now to learn something that would be useful in real life. And, and I think it would be great if one could give students at least a chance in some domain to reach the high level where they can actually see how the representations develop and how they can be helped here by having teachers guide them to a higher level and then actually document so you can actually see how people improve because very often, you know, people improve, but they don't really have any good records of what they used to be able to do. And I think basically being able to more objectifying so you can kind of see here how you learn things and then understand how you can apply similar methods maybe to other uh, domains and, and, and topics that you want to excel at. Let's talk about why uh, deliberate practice uh, can be really hard for a lot of people. So to summarize, it requires always sort of seeking to improve, constant feedback, deep focus. But it's also uh, generally a very lonely, kind of solitary pursuit. That's where you do the really hard work. And it's also, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. It's hard. You know, it's challenging. And I think a lot of people might shy away from that. So how... How best to keep people motivated to keep going day after day and pursuing a, a style of practice uh, that is sort of constantly taxing and rigorous? Well, I, I think that, that that's a great series of, of issues that you bring up. Now, I would say that one thing that people maybe don't mention is that the act of practicing seems to be a skill in itself. So you should start out maybe 15 to 30 minutes. And, and, and I think, especially with this emphasis here of accumulating hours of practice, you know, if you basically try, when you start out in a domain, to put six hours, you're not going to be able to be focused and really push yourself. And, and the claim here is that this seems to be much more effective here if you spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes, and then you stop. And then you basically wait till next day or the day after that. But this idea here that deliberate practice is kind of a very good tool to change, but you need to basically provide the appropriate context for it so you can actually now reap the benefits. Because if you're trying to do it for longer than you can sustain concentration, you're just going to make yourself frustrated and, and, and make the whole activity averse. But if you make it concentrated, I believe that then you can establish a habit. And we find that a lot of the skilled performers, you know, they have times of day. Often they kind of start out the day with 
two, three hours of deliberate practice. But that's not what they started out with. They started out with maybe 15, 30 minutes help planned by their parents. But then eventually, over time, they uh, increased that. The other thing is that you need to be rested. And I think once you're focused in on concentrating hard, then it becomes clear to you that sleeping and being rested when you start is critical. And I think there's a lot of students that I talk to who don't really have that sense and and they don't really spend a lot of time worrying about their sleep. So they are half asleep all day. But obviously that restricts their ability now to actually focus. And and I think uh, once you get sort of in the rhythm so you can kind of anticipate it, then it's going to actually be much less of an effort. The worst thing you can do is to kind of ask yourself, you know, should I go out for a hard run now? No, no, maybe in an hour. And and, and then you just keep shifting it. But if you have a fixed procedure where when you wake up, you basically have certain things you're doing, and then you're putting in uh, basically this intensive activity, and then you're done. Uh, You're going to feel refreshed and good, and it may actually be something that actually have benefits for how you feel uh, during the rest of the day. You do argue that there's essentially, there aren't innate talents, like we aren't born innately talented for something. But there are some innate traits about sort of our predisposition towards that ability to concentrate or towards the idea of, you know, of having grit, right, of being able to stick with something even when it's hard and you're not very good at it. Are, are those things that also can change over time or like, you know, how much, what is there a genetic component there? How do you break that down? Well, I, I don't think we know. And and I, I would emphasize we don't have the evidence here that uh, there really are genetic constraints. And I would say that I would emphasize finding those motivational sources. So if you get to a point where you can actually start playing a musical instrument and you can kind of explore different musical experiences and you can kind of think about how you're going to perform in front of an audience... That enjoyment and and that kind of fantasizing, that is sort of what musicians who are willing to invest in becoming better uh, in terms of the skill, they have that source. And they also enjoy, uh, you know, seeing the audience reaction here when they're actually doing something that moved people. And, And there are all these kinds of motivational kind of sources that fuel people and make them inspired here to uh, go beyond what they currently are doing. And and I think emphasizing that, because I think there are certain things where you can just decide you're going to do it. But when you're actually thinking about willpower extended for 15 years, uh, I don't know that that person who is just willing to do anything just because they're demonstrating their willpower I think there are times where there are other factors like your confidence that you will ultimately succeed. And that's the reason why I think working with a teacher that can actually back you up. So if you run into problems, it's not like you're on your own. They will actually be able to tell you, okay, you know, you need to step back here. You know, you need to be able to do this first before you actually do that. And and by pretty much having that supportive environment, I think that's going to be something that can be influenced and that would you know, uh, allow individuals to be more likely to kind of sustain uh, their development. Okay. Well, we saved the best for last. All right. 
Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, uh, used an early study of yours to come up with the idea of the 10,000-hour rule, which is that if you spend 10,000 hours practicing at something, you could become a world-class performer. You said that actually that's not quite right. Uh, why don't you tell us your side of the story because it, it is in the book itself. Right. So, so I guess the key here is two things. Now, Malcolm Gladwell actually thought that all our experts had done 10,000 hours at age 20. It turns out that that was just the average. But I think our point was, was a never study a study of violinists at an international music academy. And, and, and basically what we kind of were emphasizing was that even the most talented, the ones who are the most successful, what we find is that they actually have also trained more than the less successful violinist, implying here that training actually plays a role even at the elite levels. And I think the message is that a lot of skills take a long time to develop. And I think that is where we in, in agreement with Malcolm Gladwell, this idea here that you're going to be an instant uh, expert or that you can exhibit gifts without any training, uh, that's, that's really a myth. The other question is that Malcolm Gladwell talks about practice as something that is much broader than the concept that we've talked about here, deliberate practice, where you actually are engaging in very specific types of practice under the supervision of a teacher, ideally, that basically allows you now to really change your performance. So the idea here that just accumulating more experience uh, we've seen from all sorts of different domains is not really associated with improved performance. So a teacher who's been teaching for 30 years is not basically more able to get their students to learn things better than their colleagues. And we see the same thing with psychotherapists, that having a lot of experience of psychotherapy does not give them uh, the, the power here to improve their patients' outcomes more than less experienced individuals. So the idea here is that if you engage in deliberate practice, you can actually change and get improvement. But just doing more of the same does not seem to have any automatic benefits. Okay. But uh, to be even more specific, the 10,000-hour rule itself, you said that there is nothing particularly special about 10,000, that that was just how many hours some of these violinists had accrued by age 20. But actually, the elite violinists had accrued many more hours because they didn't become elite until much later. It was just a round number, and then it entered the public consciousness after the book was published. But actually, that is not what the research itself says, and there's a limit to how we should apply it. Exactly. So, so we estimate that about 25,000 hours is necessary to win an international piano competition. But that's basically now by pianists who are in their early 30s, uh, whereas at age 20, you know, that's 12 more years of training before you are winning competitions. But I think by actually agreeing here with Gladwell here that the amount of time that even the most talented spend on improving their performance is a pretty large number. So most people you know, basically would at least need to spend as much as the most talented to reach that level. And, and I think that's kind of where the message is. And, and once we basically look at the training, uh, it's less clear that we even need to assume the idea that some people are born with more 
talent than other individuals and that everyone has this potential for really improving if they have the right training environment with a supportive teacher and, and basically have a motivation uh, to actually improve. So I, I, I said the last question was going to be the final question. This is this next one is the real final question, okay? But no, it's, it's something that I think we should we should be clear about because uh, we haven't talked about it here, even though it's in the book. Just because a good teacher uh, is necessary for becoming uh, an elite performer at something doesn't mean that eventually you can't supersede the teacher's ability or that you can't uh, eventually put your own personal mark on whatever it is that you're doing. Eventually you can because you develop your own personalized mental representation. It's just to get to that point, right? You need to actually be well-grounded in the basics that these creative breakthroughs uh, are not these sudden leaps that everybody thinks they are. They are actually uh, based on a slow, grinding, iterative process that's required before you can add something new to the body of knowledge. Oh, I I think that's great. And, And I would argue that in order to get to the point where you're making a creative contribution, which really goes beyond anything that anybody has done within the domain. The argument is that if you rely on this accumulated knowledge where people have added to it over centuries on how to basically reach now the technical skills that would allow you to actually reach the frontier where you now can do what other people have been able to do, that's when you put yourself in the position of actually making your own creative uh, contribution that really goes beyond what other people have done. And I think that, you know, if we have more people who are able to kind of push the boundaries of what has been done to provide and build now a society where everyone, you know, would be able to develop happiness, you know, I think that's what I would love to see. Anders Erickson, thanks for being here. Well, my pleasure. But before we let you go, uh, what is a long-form recommendation for our listeners? One book that uh, has meant a lot to me uh, was a former mentor, uh, Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon. He won the uh, Nobel Prize in Economy in 1978. And he wrote an autobiography uh, that basically uh, uh, that I think is one of the most sort of interesting and amazing books uh, about his life. And, and, and he, you know, really was interested in trying to pinpoint the structure of thinking. Now, this book was published many years ago, and the title is Models of My Life, uh, because he was doing models of all sorts of things. And next up on the show, we are joined by global media editor Matthew Garahan uh, to talk about the latest happenings at Disney, where there may be a succession battle a-brewing. Matt, thanks for joining. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Hello. So why don't you start off, tell us what happened this week uh, with with Disney and uh, the potential changes at the top. Uh, So turmoil in the Magic Kingdom this week uh, with Bob Iger, the CEO, um, who's due to retire and leave in two years. All the money had been on him being replaced by a guy called Tom Staggs, who was the chief operating officer at Disney, who'd worked there for 25 years. 
And this week he left very unexpectedly, leaving Disney and Bob Iger without a successor. And it was only a year ago, right, that he was elevated to chief, op- chief operating officer and was sort of seen as that was like the anointing. Like he yeah. was going to be the guy to be entrusted with the keys to the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was a bit of a bake-off going on with another guy called Jay Rizzullo, who ran Disney's parks for a while and was the chief finance officer. But he wasn't hugely liked internally and he ended up leaving. I think he left about 18 months ago. And Tom Staggs is the guy who left this this week, was elevated and was very much seen as being groomed to take over a smooth transition of power uh, in two years. Uh, so his his exit now means that there is no obvious successor, and all the talk has been of who will get the job because it's one of the most sought after is the most sought after job in in media. Well, so they're the biggest media company in the world. Yep. Um. So they're huge. I mean, they make tons of money. Everyone knows all of their properties. But uh, they're kind of in an interesting place. I mean, so Iger's been there for 10 years. He's had – he's made some, a, a series of deals, yep. really changed the company. So what what, is it, what does Disney look like sort of after 10 years of Iger? Well, it looks radically different to 10 years before uh, when he started the job. I mean, he's really repositioned the company around brands. He's bought the biggest brands in media. He bought Marvel. So they have superhero movies coming out every year, which make a ton of money. Uh, he bought Pixar. That was the first big deal he did. And the, the idea there was to use Pixar to revive Disney animation, which had gone stale and kind of moribund. And then two years ago, he bought Lucasfilm, which gives Disney the Star Wars rights. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And now, and now they, so, so he's, he's taken a lot of the, on movies at least, he's taken a lot of the risk out of making movies. And that's always been the biggest issue for any Hollywood studio is, you know, you can have a good year, you can have a bad year. It's hard to say you're going to have a good year every year. And Disney kind of is having good years every year because of the pipeline that they've developed. And these are also all then characters that like when you talk about corporate synergy, right? It feeds yeah. into the theme parks and it feeds into all the merchandise. And it's just like this never ending juggernaut of money yeah, that they've produced. <laughs> no, I, I like the use of synergies <laughs> in an appropriate context yeah. here. Usually that it's gets kind of my one. like BS antennas up. But it's, here one of the worst words. it's one of the most jargony words around. But it's sort of true because – it's one of the few examples. Yeah, of they, actually I mean, happened. but they, you, if you take a step back and look at what they what they are, they are a toy company, right? They are a theme park attractions company. They're a video games company. They're a TV company. I mean, they made you know home furnishings for a while, right? And it's all around this the intellectual property that they have. And Iger has just developed this uh, library of IP, which is unrivaled. There's no one else on the planet who has the IP that Disney has. And that drives all these other businesses. It drives toy sales. It drives, you know, merchandising sales. Mm-hmm. And they do that in a way that other media companies just, just can't. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, as our listeners may remember, um, we've actually had a rough ride for media stocks. It's kind of set off by Disney last summer. Yep. So there's another side of their business that they're seeing some pressure under. Yep. So ESPN historically has been where Disney makes most of its money. So it's not as sexy as what how you feel about sports versus movies. <laughs> Movies get the headlines, but ESPN kind of puts food on the table. And last summer, uh, some modest warnings about subscriber slowdown at ESPN sent the entire media sector in a complete nosedive. And it hasn't really recovered. Disney kind of has recovered a little bit, but it's still, you know, the, ju- the jury is still out on whether they can really fully bounce back and whether they can get growth back in their, their cable television business. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Uh, the first is whether turmoil in the Magic Kingdom is a Matt Garahan original phrase. Yeah. Uh, okay. I just, I just, it is. I should, I should trademark that. Well done. Yeah. Okay. 
The second is just based on what you just said, what would be wrong with Iger continuing on past 2018? I know he's he's past the typical retirement age for a CEO, yeah. but given that he seems to be pretty well liked by Disney's board and by the public markets, what would be the big deal of him just sticking around? There wouldn't be one, really. I mean, I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, there's the, the people I talk to there are steering me away from that. But there isn't really another candidate. I mean, he, he knows the business inside out. He used to run ABC, which is the Disney broadcast network. He has a kind of, you know, without putting him on a pedestal in the Magic Kingdom too much here, he has a kind of good grasp of the dynamics that are at work in media and entertainment and why brands can cut through disruption in distribution and disruption in, in audience and fragmentation, all, all of those things. So I think that's probably the most likely outcome, despite the fact that they're saying, it's no, he's out, because he's already postponed retirement once already. He was supposed to go two years ago and he extended again. So if we assume that he does go, then the question is who replaces him? And there is a sort of paucity of candidates. I mean, there, there aren't really... There isn't really a ready-made success. A lot of the talk has been that Sheryl Sandberg, who's on the Disney board, would get the job. Indeed, our colleague John Gapper has, has wrote an amusing piece uh, which suggests that she, she might be up for it. Uh, and there are other media CEOs around who might be in the running, but there isn't one that really... And not homegrown. No, least. I mean, Stag, Tom Staggs was the last homegrown candidate. And there are, you know, they've got, crea- they've got great creative people. There's a guy called Kevin Feige who runs Marvel. But, you know, the view from the board, you know, you can't just be creative. You have to understand the, the kind of all the tentacles at work in a business like Disney's. I have a question actually for both of you, and it's about the way that most companies go about CEO succession planning, right? Because the typical model seems to be that you cultivate a few different candidates. They become internal rivals, essentially. At some point in the process, one person gets pegged as the next CEO, at which point the others have to step down because it's kind of, or yeah, they they either leave or it's sort of just mutually understood that they won't be around much longer because you don't want somebody who has passed over for a job being a subordinate to the guy who ends up at the top, right? It's just an awkward situation. And also those other people were, those other candidates who were passed over presumably were ambitious for the top job. So by leaving, they try to become the CEO somewhere else. This seems like kind of a wasteful model, right? Because you end up you end up training some worthy candidates. You end up losing all of them but one, and it leaves you vulnerable to this situation where if that guy then ends up deciding he doesn't want the job, or if it turns out the board doesn't like him for whatever reason, maybe he's discovered later not to be CEO material. There's nobody. Right. Or at least nobody in house, which, you know, you know, whatever you think about external versus internal hiring, Mm -hmm. at least the people who've worked at the company for a while have that institutional legacy knowledge. Right. They know how it works. But what's the other model? I don't don't know. I guess that's my that's my question is, isn't there a better way or shouldn't there be a better way? I don't know how else they would go about it. But this seems like a way that leaves you uh, exposed to this very problem. I think there should be another way, but to get there, you would have to have Taipei personality types in senior positions having to damp down their ego a little bit. It's a lot about ego. You're going to let the guy that you were vying for the job with go ahead of you and sit there smiling. And it's just not a trait that you know, you see in very many people, especially Especially not very very men. No, no, people aren't humble, you know, and they, and they, and, and to be, CEO, you know, you have to be a 
particular type of per driven, you know, kill or be killed personality. Yeah. Right? Sociopath. Yeah. If you think about it, I mean, look at, across the rest of the, of the media industry, and there's quite a few companies that we cover, mm. right, that are currently headed by older aging, white aging white men. Yeah. And I mean, Disney at least had a successor in place yeah. until this until week. This I mean, you, you have some other companies that are kind of even you know, more chaotic. I mean, we've been following what's going on at, at, with, with Viacom, with Sumner yeah. Redstone and and you know what sort of that, that has knock-on effects for CBS too. I mean, you think about yeah. what will happen with Murdoch. You're right, and sh- I mean the shareholders kind of have to, you know, take a back seat in all this. And it, right. it's, it's these old guys hanging on to these jobs, having a great old time, going to movie premieres and hanging out with movie stars and TV stars, and they don't want to let go. You know, they want to they want to keep enjoying it. And, and how encouraging is that to a to a new generation of executive who might be coming up? Maybe you 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 know what? Maybe you work for a really really long time at Disney, but are you going to wait around? Mm. And there and now that there's so many you know there's a lot of venture capital out there. There's a lot of new money for media. You go start your own business, right? Yeah. Or you know go go lead some new you know emerging venture. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be stuck within one of these big giants. I mean, Disney you would think would be different to that, but there isn't. They don't have a dual class structure. There's no family control. It's they have a strong board. Um, Iger was on the Apple board, as well as Sheryl Sandberg. They've got I think Jack Dorsey's on the board too. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of tech back and forth between Disney and Silicon Valley. Whoever it is has to is going to be has to be someone who too understands technology and understands right. the, the sort of the opportunities and the, the threats of new types of distribution. So maybe it'll be somebody from Silicon Valley, but they also have to be someone who enjoy who kind of gets creativity, which is what that business that company is all about. There's a cherry on top. They know how to manage people too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we'll stay tuned and we'll have you back on, I'm sure, to discuss this uh, probably b- before too long. Before too long. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. But before you get going, what is your long form recommendation for our listeners, Matt? Uh, it's a piece in the New Yorker this week, or maybe it was last week, by David Remnick about Aretha Franklin, which I read late the other night, which I really liked. Excellent. I really loved it. It was really, really good. I recommend everyone go read it. What, what's what's one takeaway from the article? The, it was quite near the beginning. A, he is in the dressing room with her, and she's counting out rolls of $100 bills because she always gets paid before a show. In cash. In cash. Puts it in her bag. This is a sort of the legacy of Motown and getting ripped off by promoters, and she wants her money mm-hmm. up front, and you pay the lady herself, and it goes in the bag, and it's in cash. We should do that at the FT. We should. Uh, be, we should in cash. <laughs> it would be great. We'd all feel so much wealthier if we could actually at least count it before we spent it. Yeah, but he's a terrific writer and just that, you know, it just captured the whole thing. And that is the end of the main program for today's show. But before we go, Shannon and I have yet to do our long-form recommendations. So let's do those now. Uh, Shannon. You're it. You first. All right. Um, I am going to recommend a TV show and a companion podcast. So the TV show is The Americans. If you're not already watching it, I apologize. You really shouldn't start watching season four, which is what's on, which is recently started now. It's on FX. Um, you should go back and watch seasons one, two, and three because it is not the kind of show that you can kind of just no, you jump can't. into. You need the background. Uh, but it's just, it's fantastic. It's um, about uh, Russian spies in the US in the 80s. And it is filmed in Brooklyn in my old neighborhood, but that is not the only reason you should watch it. It is just, it's a kind of amazingly intense, stressful, and gorgeous at times show um, about family and uh, politics and psychology. And 
there is also this fantastic companion podcast uh, to it that Slate puts out. Um, I think they just started it actually last season. It, and last season it was it's it's done like with the people who make the show, so it's a very much it's not just one of those podcasts where people kind of go on and like talk about week to week what happens. It's really about the making of the show, sort of how they think about it. If you're at all interested in TV production, it's fascinating. And this season in particular, it's been great so far because um, they're bringing in some outside people. So they've brought in so far like a former FBI agent uh, who talks about like what it was like working in the FBI. They brought in a former East German spy who like lived in the U.S. illegally and was spying here for years. And I am now obsessed with him and want to know everything about him. So and This is easily my favorite thing on television now that oh, Mad yeah. Men is over. It's excellent. Um, uh, and in addition to all the fun stuff you just mentioned, uh, it's also just a really compelling portrait of a marriage yeah. and of the institution of marriage yeah. uh, and specifically the way that many of even our most intimate relationships uh, are performative in a way, which is actually a bad but also a good thing sometimes. Sometimes you need a certain amount of self-deception and illusion yeah. uh, to get over hard times. Totally. Totally. It's fantastic. What about you? I am recommending the Living Room episode of the Love and Radio podcast. This episode is hosted by Diane Weepert, and uh, it's just a really lovely story of voyeurism, actually, <laughs> uh, of watching a couple from across the street, just like in Rear Window, right? Uh, the movie, mm -hmm. uh, the Hitchcock movie from a long time ago with Jimmy Stewart, and, uh, and the surprising twist that I can't give away that renders it just a really moving and just a really moving episode and also one that, uh, you know, if you're prone to crying, this might just get those waterworks going. Me, uh, don't listen on the subway. Yeah, no, it's a, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great podcast that you should listen to in general, but this is definitely my favorite episode. Um, and I think it was produced last year, but don't let that stop you. Uh, I just listened to it recently, and it's really terrific. Uh, and that is the end of today's show. The Emily Oster interview that Shannon hosted will be out on Monday, April 11th. Definitely check that out. Subscribe to our sister long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. Shannon, you want to take us out? Yes. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Let us know what you thought of the show. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. You can leave a voicemail. You can also send us an email to alphachat at ft.com or tweet at us. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. Uh, please go on iTunes, leave a review, and rate the show. Let us know what you think. It also helps other people find the show. You can find notes about the people we've interviewed and our long-form recommendations at ft.com slash alphachat. And as fascinating as our interview with Anders Ericsson was, I'm pretty sure there was one person in the room who was bored, and that was Amy Keene because she has already transcended the boundaries of human excellence. Thanks for producing and editing the podcast, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.